Well, I suspect most people have an innate sense of justice. We see it fairly early on, don't we, in our children. Uh, at a young age, uh, they know what it is to get out of trouble, to plead innocence, uh, to blame the dog or a sibling. But they're acutely aware, aren't they, when they're punished wrongly. When you as a parent get it wrong and you blame one child, or they let you know if they are innocent and being held guilty. Uh, and I think this continues to grow in us. In a, in a democratic society in particular, we have a real, uh, a real fascination, but also uh, uh, we're frequently appalled by accounts of miscarriage of justice. Uh, it's frequently the, the fodder of uh, TV shows, uh, investigative journalists, and the stories intrigue us too, from whether Breaker Morant was really guilty, but if he'd had a proper Australian trial, then he would have been acquitted, uh, or Lindy Chamberlain, or many other stories in between. But if there's one story of a miscarriage of justice without equal, it's surely the account of Jesus and his crucifixion. In the bit where we've picked up, uh, previously Jesus has been betrayed and arrested in the dead of night. And the Jewish council of elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, have determined his guilt. It seems they've determined his guilt based on blasphemy. And here they bring, Pilate, they bring Jesus to Pilate, seeking his execution. Interestingly, the charge they come with before Pilate is not one of, of blasphemy, which seems to be their major concern, but they package it in such a way to try and appeal to Pilate. They, they bring three charges against him. Have a look in verse 2 of chapter 23. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. The first claim is that he's subverting the nation, that he's misleading it, taking it in a direction it ought not to go. Now, of the three claims, this one seems the most sub, uh, subjective. Hard to prove. And yet the implication in them bringing this charge is, hey, watch out for this guy, Pilate. He's disturbing the peace as a religious agitator. The second claim is more precise. He opposes payments of taxes to Caesar. Now this claim is just a blatant lie. Because just three chapters earlier, have a flick back, chapter 20, when they try to catch him out by uh, asking him a question about the payment of taxes, uh, chapter 20, verse 25, he said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. He's saying you should pay the taxes you owe to Caesar. So the second claim is a blatant lie, but it seems here they're trying to get at that angle. Pilate, you've got to watch out for this guy. He's going to threaten your financial administration of this area. He's a threat to you and a threat to Rome. The third claim, 
He claims to be Messiah, a king. Now, in this claim, this claim is certainly true. Jesus does claim to be the Messiah, a king. But not in the narrow sense the Jews are seeking to imply. Jesus' kingship is not of this world. He's not a revolutionary trying to raise up an army against the Romans. He's not seeking to lead an insurrection. In fact, Jesus counters this as they approach him uh, to arrest him, just in the previous chapter, in 22, verse 52. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Jesus was indeed the Messiah, God's promised king, but not one leading a rebellion against the Romans. You see the way in which the Jewish leaders have sought to put this to Pilate in a way that would threaten him that he would seek action. But Pilate questions him, and I take it that we just have a summary of the conversation here, because Pilate only asks one question, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus affirms what Pilate has said. But then Pilate concludes, perhaps thinking, well, he's just a harmless religious enthusiast. Pilate says, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But the people aren't satisfied. They want to push the point. They want to wind up. He's he's winding up the people against you. But when Pilate hears that he's from Galilee, he thinks, well, I can shirk this responsibility. I can avoid having to make a decision on this and send him off to Herod. So he sends him off to Herod. And for Herod, it seems Jesus ends up as somewhat of a disappointing curiosity. Herod had been looking forward to meeting Jesus, to seeing some of the miraculous signs that he'd heard Jesus was performing. Uh, But Jesus is not going to perform party tricks for Herod. And so despite the accusations of the chief priests and teachers of the law who are in Herod's ear, he asks some questions out of curiosity and then loses interest. He mocks him, he and his guards mock him, but take no official action against him and send him back to Pilate. It's really clear from this account that Jesus is not guilty. Uh, We hear it in Pilate's declaration at the beginning. But then again, Luke makes sure he records three other times where Jesus' innocence is attested. Verse 14... Uh, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. I have found no basis for your charges. He's innocent. Again in verse 15, Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. And then again, as they continue to insist, verse 21, they they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why 
What crime has this man committed? I have found him in him no grounds for the death penalty. Jesus is entirely without guilt. And Luke takes pains to show us. He is obviously innocent. Entirely innocent. And yet at this point, Pilate's sense of justice, his desire to free him because he's done nothing wrong, is overwhelmed by his political expediency. See, at this time, it's the time of the Passover, right? So the big festival that draws all the Jewish people in from their outlying cities and towns. Jerusalem is swelled for the Passover. And Pilate couldn't really risk uh, an out-of-control riot or an uprising happening during that time in particular with all these extra Jews in the city. Pilate had already got a couple of black marks against his name with the emperor. And no doubt he was particularly anxious not to give any other grounds for the emperor to be disappointed with him, to risk the confidence of the emperor. And so, in the first instance, he tries to evade making a decision, doesn't he? He thinks, oh, he's from Herod's area, I can send him off to Herod. Well, that doesn't work. Then he seeks to placate their demands. He says, I'll just have him punished. I'll have him flogged. And then I'll let him go free, hoping that that might placate the crowd. It's not the right thing, of course. If Jesus is entirely innocent, then he shouldn't be punished at all. But Pilate's thinking, maybe I can give them something of what they want. Thirdly, he tries to do the right thing by releasing him, uh, but for the wrong reasons, because because the crowd chose him. There was a practice, it seems... Uh, for the governor, uh, on the occasion of the great feasts, uh, the Passover being the key one, that he would uh, show an act of clemency to one of the prisoners. Uh, I think we still see this uh, these days in some countries where on the, uh, on the president's birthday he'll, he'll um, uh, release a number of prisoners or, or commute their sentences and the like. So, so, here, so Pilate seizes on this. Maybe this is a way I can release Jesus as I intend. He tries to do it through an act of clemency rather than an act of justice. It would still be unjust because Jesus had nothing to be pardoned. Uh, but this even backfires on Pilate. Instead, they call for Barabbas, one guilty of insurrection and murder, what we today call a terrorist. They want him freed instead. And so with these various attempts failing, finally Pilate capitulates to their demands. He puts his own selfish ambition above his principles. And so whilst verse 20 tells us that he was still wanting to release Jesus, we read in verse 23, but with louder shouts they insisted insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. 
It's an appalling miscarriage of justice, isn't it? An innocent man put to death, a murderer shown clemency. And it's interesting to see that this, these uh, events leading to the central event of the Easter story, Jesus' crucifixion, in fact, the central event of all history, these events are brought about by petty and wicked actions. The greed of Judas in the first place who agrees to betray Jesus. The envy of the Jewish leaders. The flippancy and inaction of Herod. The fickleness of the crowd that on the Sunday welcomed him as a, as a king and five days later are calling for him to be crucified. The self-interest of Pilate protecting himself. In fact, there's nothing noble at all in these events. Humanly speaking, this tragedy and miscarriage of justice is brought about by people's selfishness, wickedness and inaction. But in the good purposes of God, the tragedy and miscarriage of justice, as it truly is, God intended to bring about his good and just purposes. The injustice of people, God intended to bring about his just purposes. And if none of the characters are acting nobly, there's one at the centre of it fairly passive through this account. It's Jesus who remains calm while all are getting agitated around him. And it's Jesus who willingly, purposefully submits to what is to come. This is not some political leader who's failed, who's been worked into a corner and martyred for his cause. Jesus lived out his whole life, his whole ministry, knowing that this was the end for which he had come into the world. Right back in Luke chapter 9, as soon as the disciples come to some understanding of Jesus being the Messiah, God's promised king, he warns them. Chapter 9, verse 22, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. A little later on as they protest, he says again, listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. This has come as no surprise to him. As he's in the garden praying the night before uh, these events unfold, as he waits for Judas to come with the soldiers to arrest him and betray him. Jesus warns his disciples again about why this is all happening. Have a look back just at uh, the previous chapter, chapter 22, verse 37. Chapter 22, verse 37, it is written, 
and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Jesus is here quoting from Isaiah 53, written hundreds of years before by the prophet Isaiah, who talks about God's suffering servant who was to come. And Jesus is saying, this is written about me. That which was written back then is about me and needs to be fulfilled in me. Jesus just quotes one verse, but I think it's referring to the whole section, which also includes Isaiah 53 verse 7. says, he was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? You see, this whole thing is being fulfilled in these events. Jesus is God's promised king. He's also the suffering servant who would come. And suffer for his people. He's not a failed Messiah, not a mere martyr for his cause, but in God's divine plan, Jesus became one of us to restore us to God himself. Well, in any good narrative, uh, a story told, whether it's true or fiction, I think any good story works because there are aspects of the characters that we can relate to. Whether it's a love story where we want to be the hero or we want to be with the love interest. Whether it's a, a, a tragedy where the characters we see, we relate to their dilemmas, we relate to their heartaches. And we understand the choices they make even if we don't agree with them. Any good story, we can relate to aspects of the characters, aspects of their experience. So who do you relate to in this story? What aspects do you relate to? Do you feel with Jesus the injustice of the circumstances? Do you feel a righteous anger at this miscarriage of justice? A righteous anger at his treatment? A righteous anger that here our Lord and Saviour is being mocked and ridiculed? Do you feel for Pilate's predicament? I think I do. He, he has this strong sense of justice, but he also finds himself between a rock and a hard place. He's trying to find a way out. And so he ends up compromising on his principle to please those around him, to put selfish ambition above his principles. Can you see how somebody might choose to do that? Have you ever chosen to do that? I'm sure I have. Can you relate to the crowd, excited by the loud voices around them? Have you ever known that where you end up going along with 
whoever speaks the loudest without really thinking why. Perhaps you can relate to Herod, particularly with his approach to Jesus. Have you ever had that curiosity about Jesus where you want to see those miracles? You think, wouldn't it have been great to be there to see those miracles? I think I have. Do you continue with Herod, though? That when you look to Jesus to provide something for you and he doesn't perform for you as you wish, that you lose interest and ridicule him? Maybe you relate to aspects of all of this. It seems there's one thing that all the characters are somewhat oblivious to. They're missing the true significance of what's going on with their petty and trivial actions. They're missing the part they're playing in the greatest act in history. And there's a great irony in this too, I think. We see this great injustice against Jesus, who is the just judge of all the earth. We see this mock adoration of Jesus as King of the Jews, who is truly God's eternal King. We see the crowds calling for the death of the one who is the author of life. And we see Barabbas, Bar-Abbas, his name means son of the father. We see the son of the father who goes free while the son of the father is killed. Well, whether you relate to aspects of Jesus or Pilate or the crowds or Herod, I wonder if you've ever related to the character of Barabbas. Not a well-developed character. In fact, we never actually see him. We only hear him talked of. But he's not a particularly likeable character. What All we know about him is that he's a mod, he, he was an ancient day terrorist, guilty of insurrection and murder. Condemned to death rightly for the crimes he had committed. But think for a moment what it would have been like for Barabbas. Presumably sitting in a cell, contemplating that at any moment, any day, the jailer may come and say, you're up. Today's the day you're being executed. I wonder what that would be like, facing your own imminent death. And imagine what he was thinking that day when the jailer walked around getting his keys out. Hey, Barabbas, as he unlocks the door, you're free. Barabbas contemplating that in any moment he could be executed, put to death rightly for what he had done, and all of a sudden, in an instance, because of nothing that he's done, he's set free. You're free to go on your way. I wonder what that would have been like. I wonder what he did. Would he have said, I'm out of here before they change their mind. I'm heading straight for home. 
or a safe house or whatever he had. Or I wonder if he blended into the crowd to observe the events that were happening. I wonder if he saw the three crosses on Calvary and stood there thinking, one of them was for me. And now an innocent man is dying in my place. We hear remarkable stories from time to time, don't we, of people giving their lives for another. People who sacrifice themselves, risk themselves in some heroic rescue in order to save somebody, but it costs them their life. Remarkable stories. Occasionally, we'll even hear of stories of people taking a punishment for somebody else. People suffering for crimes they didn't commit. Here we have an even greater picture of Jesus, radically innocent. He's not only innocent of the crimes that he's charged with, but innocent of all crimes, all sin. Alongside even the best of us, we would look like bundles of snarling self-interest, selfishness. Jesus, entirely innocent, entirely without guilt, entirely sinless. And there's Barabbas, guilty of insurrection, the very charge they tried to pin on Jesus. Free. But of course, the great news of Easter is not just that Jesus was dying in the place of Barabbas, the son of the father, but Jesus was dying for all the sons and daughters of the father. For all of us who put our trust in him. Isaiah 53, verse 5, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we have been healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The freedom Barabbas knew that day is the freedom, the greater freedom that we know through faith in Jesus. That we, the guilty ones, are set free, free from the punishment of sin and death, whilst Jesus, the sinless one, dies in our place. We are the ones who are facing our own death and punishment, who through nothing we've done are set free. So do you know that freedom of Barabbas? As we're reminded of this account this week and over the, the, today and over the next week approaching Easter, do you know the freedom of having our sins set free, being freed from sin and death, that we, the guilty ones, no longer bear that guilt because Jesus has died in our place as our substitute? Perhaps you've been unwilling to make a decision like Pilate, trying to dodge the issue. 
Perhaps you've been flippant like Herod in your approach to Jesus. Well, this Easter, the one character we should relate to is Barabbas, the one who has been set free. And if you know that, if you know that freedom, then this Easter, give thanks to God for it. There's an old hymn we're going to sing straight after this, which starts with these great words. My song is love unknown, my Saviour's love for me, love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. But who am I that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die? Let's stand as we sing.